Before we go any further, a warning. We're going to go to some pretty dark places in this episode, talking about alleged sexual assault and murder. There's also some bad language. So if you don't want to hear that, or you don't want your children to hear that, stop listening. Okay? We're talking about the the serial killer. New South Wales police don't have a great deal of experience investigating serial killings. I can't picture him being a murderer, you know. I can't picture him doing that to those kids, really. I want him to go to jail for justice. And I still want to fight for justice. 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 All we want is justice. Get us in the court. And this is unique. It hasn't happened in New South Wales before. As far as I know, it hasn't happened in Australia. I am absolutely gobsmacked by the amount of people that have never heard of it or no understanding of it. This is Bowerville, a podcast about innocence and guilt, brought to you by the Australian newspaper. I'm Dan Box. So, where are we? Three unsolved murders of three Aboriginal children, Colleen Walker, Evelyn Greenup and Clinton Speedy DeRue. All three disappeared from Bowerville, a small town in northern New South Wales, over the summer of 1990 to 1991. And then there's Jay, Jay Hart. He's the suspect. In fact, he went to court once for killing Clinton and later over Evelyn's murder. Both times Jay beat the charges, he was found not guilty. As a result, he's walking free today. So we thought we should ask the question, who is Jay? I had a relationship with him. And you had a child together? Yes, we did. This is Alison Walker. She and Jay spent years living together in Bowerville before the murders took place. Big man. (laughs) Quiet, very quiet, especially when he was sober. As soon as he got alcohol into him, he was... Different. How different? He changed. In what way? What did he? What did he become when he was drinking? He became the devil. He tried to kill me a couple, a few times. How? He tried to shoot me when I was pregnant, seven and a half, seven, pregnant. And one time, he physically assaulted me when I was seven and a half months pregnant, when I was carrying the baby. He just push, just knocked me down on my ass, and I fell into a broken bottle. And right here, you hit the unavoidable issue when talking about Bowerville. You see, Alison is black, and Jay is white. As Alison sees it, that makes a big difference. He still stayed in that town after he threatened me all those times. He Why didn't did even get charged for most of them incidents. Did he get charged for any of them? He didn't get charged for trying to shoot me when I was pregnant. Did you go to the police? Yeah. You went to the police and you told them he tried to shoot you? All they did was go and get the guns off him and took them out to his grandparents' property out, out on Wilson Road. And what about when he beat you? Did you go to the police then? Yeah. And what did they do? He never got charged. Jay moved to Bowerville when he was 14 to live with his mum. His uncles were there, so were his grandparents. So really, he grew up there. He was a product of the place. To understand him, it helps to understand Bowerville itself. A bit of history. Before white settlement, the town was called Barung. It was a meeting place for the Gumbangir nation. Then, white men came here clearing cedar. Then came the dairy industry. Both have now gone, taking with them a lot of jobs, ripping the heart out of a lot of local towns. 
I asked Patricia Staddams, she's Evelyn's grandma, one of the murdered girls, what growing up in Bowerville was like. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> well, when we was growing up here on a mission, well, it was segregated, you know, there was a fence between the white over there and the black sea. And that fence is still there today. Barry Toohey moved to Bowerville a year before the first murder took place. Well, Bowerville, like a lot of small country towns, uh, there's a fair amount of racism. I think you'll find that a lot of white people would deny that. Yeah, they do. Um, but if you look closely, um, it's there. Um, and I can give you examples where I will walk into a shop and an Aboriginal person will be in front of me, but I'll get served first. I've had Aboriginal friends of mine tell me of experiences where they'll walk into a shop, hand over some money for some goods, put their hand out for change, the change will be put on a counter. White person who puts their hand out for change, change gets put in their hand. And that's still happening today? That happens today. Barry's a mental health worker who's worked closely with the families of the murdered kids. He actually called me up after that interview took place. Just wanted to stress that if a shopkeeper actually tried to serve him before an Aboriginal person, he wouldn't let them do it. For what it's worth, Barry's white. Talk to other white people, though, and it's pretty obvious the racial tension runs both ways. Others we spoke to didn't want to be named. But this is their land, not our land. I had, not last night, not the night before, the night before that, I was coming home and there was two little Aboriginal kids in the middle of the road. They called out to me, fuck you, you white cunt. So I went, as you do. <laughs> I ain't taking shit from a 10-year-old and a 13-year-old. I backed up and said, what'd you say? Fuck you, you white bitch. I said, what for? This is my land. What are you driving on my land for? I said, you own shit. You own the bike that you're riding on. I want to stab you, white fella. Why? This is my point. Why? In the midst of this, Jay lived in a yellow Viscount caravan standing in the garden of his mother's bungalow. He got work in the town's hide factory, shifting carcasses around. Barry and Sue Bailey lived on the same street as Jay back then and remember watching him grow up. The other noise you can hear in the background is their dog. Well, I don't know. He's obviously like he used to go to bloody work, do his work, come home, get a few beers. That was it. Susan, you remember him as a lad? Anything he used to do? I don't think he liked doing anything much. Just having a few grogs and can't, can't imagine him being a sportsman. He's too slow. Yeah, the whole too slow. You slow walk too slow. People, you know, they're slow walking people. They're not. They're not <laughs> fast. I don't know how he'd be able to do do anything because he's too bloody slow. <laughs> They'd run away from him, they'd get away, all right. <laughs> <laughs> so he's too slow, so he wasn't into his sports. He liked, but he liked to drink. Yeah, he liked he to have his drink, it. yes, yeah. he did. Oh, he liked he to have his drink. And he'd go out and they'd get under that big tree or wherever, or wherever they accumulate, the boys. We used to call them all the boys. they accumulate under the tree or whatnot. They'd ring up and tell us to bring out a carton or something. We'd take that out and uh, whatever. But the girls, they, they'd end up... Sometimes they wouldn't let the girls in, but uh, other times they would. By the age of 24, Jay was a regular at parties in the Aboriginal part of town, known as the Mission. He used to bring grog and marijuana. Everyone says Jay was a physically big man. 
Alison Walker was not his only sexual partner at the mission. There'd been other girls. And that's possibly important because internal police documents suggest a sexual link to each of these killings. Evelyn, who was four, disappeared from a bedroom in which her mother was sleeping, and when her mum woke up, her shorts and underpants had been pulled down. Clinton, who was 16, disappeared from Jay Hart's caravan, where he'd been sleeping with his girlfriend, whose clothes had also been removed when she woke up. Jay was last seen at the scene of each. Colleen, the first of the three children to go missing, was a 16-year-old girl, and she was last seen walking off alone after a party on the mission. Her sister Paula says Jay was sexually interested in her too. What we did hear that he did um, come on to her that night of the party. And it was in a house on the Mish and um, a couple of men heard and saw him do that and they moved him out of the house. But he didn't leave the Mish. If you're thinking that this is second-hand evidence and wouldn't stand up in court, you're right. But there are other people with other stories about Jay. Marjorie Jarrett was Clinton's stepmother and still lives on the mission today. Well, for instance, one night in my place here, he was here, we were drinking, and we said, we're all going to bed now, you'll have to go. So he went. I didn't know he'd come back. And early hours of the morning... I heard a, someone screaming or something. I got up to see. But he was here thinging with my son. So Jay was what, fighting with your son? Yeah, swinging, hitting with the broom or something or something. I don't know what happened. They was out in the lounge. And they was telling me that he was standing over this young girl and thinging my son, Philip. He woke up and seen him and he told him to go and they started thinging me. So he swung the broom at him. So Jay was in your house at night, standing over a young girl? And she was staying with us. And they said he, she was, he was sort of looking down at her and when they was all asleep, he comes through the back door. We didn't know, even know he was here. Another woman, who asked not to be named, also remembers Jay. He was a very violent man when he had a bit of alcohol in him. Really? Yeah, very violent man. So he changed? He changed. For instance, I've got to say this, you know, it was a night I've gone down to his caravan to have a drink and he was always taking um, stuff for indigestion. Pills for indigestion. Pills for indigestion. I said, how does that help? He used to always put it on me. Would you like to jump into bed with me? He said, no, no, thank you. You're a very good friend. He said, well, there's a door. And he said, yes, and I'm going to use it. So I used to come home. Did he try that with other women? I'd say he would have, yep. And he could be violent? Yes, he could be a violent man. Did you ever see him being violent? Well, I never used to see him being violent, but um, I used to see him very drunk. So again, as evidence, that's compelling, but it's not conclusive. Except we've also seen police documents that show other witnesses describe Jay getting into a bed where Colleen was sleeping a few months before she disappeared and that Colleen later complained Jay touched her vagina and breasts. Also, other witnesses say Jay got into an argument after drinking and threatened to bury them out on the Congarini Road, which is where Clinton and Evelyn's bodies were later found. Like the allegations made by Alison that Jay assaulted her, detectives did follow these claims up in police records from the time, 
some, but not all, are mentioned in the files. This is Evelyn's mum, Rebecca Staddams. What? You know, actually, you didn't see him on a mission for about a couple of months after, for a couple of months. After each of the children disappeared? Because yeah, I noticed when Evelyn went missing, he wasn't, you didn't see him for about oh, a couple of, several months after, on the, back, back on a mission. Jay himself declined to be interviewed by police about Colleen's and then Evelyn's disappearance. He was charged over Clinton's killing, but found not guilty in court in 1994. A decade later, 2004, another Aboriginal man came forward to police and told them Jay had once said to him something like, I've got bodies, I've killed people and their bodies are out on the Congarini. Why did it take this man so long to come forward? Police documents say he, quote, kept this information to himself until February 2004 because he feared Hart and was concerned police would not believe him because of his aboriginality and the fact that Hart is white, end quote. Then another man came forward. He was a prisoner who'd known Jay in jail while he was waiting for his trial. Giving evidence at an inquest into the children's deaths, he was known only as Witness X. This is what he said. Jay just said not to get the wrong idea about the young girl's death. He went into sort of a bit of detail and I had to cut him off, but she'd had her head smashed against the wall and she was in a white dress. The lawyer asked him, did he talk about how old the girl was? And Witness X said, four year old. The lawyer asks, did he say it was during any particular event or anything like that? And Witness X says, no, no, I cut him off, mate. Yes, I didn't want to know about him. The lawyer asks, did he talk to you about the reasons why he had to? And Witness X replies, he was trying to justify himself, but it was over anger. It was just pure anger. Years after that first trial, when he was acquitted of killing Clinton, the police tried charging Jay with killing Evelyn, but he was found not guilty again. So, yeah, he was obviously very much a suspect. This is Jason Evers, another detective, and one of those who charged Jay with Evelyn's murder. I asked him what Jay was like. Jay Thomas Hart, when I first met him, or at the time of the murder? Tell me about when you met him. I think he was a beaten man by then, to a certain extent. He was overweight. Um, the, The strangest thing I think that I could ever say about him, I think he actually convinced himself to think that he hadn't done it which really concerned me because he was a big man on the mission. He was supplying Yandi, which is cannabis, and, you know, alcohol to the Aboriginal ladies. You know, he'd been in relationships. I think Alison Walker was one of them. And, you know, his sexual predator-type behaviour eventually came out. But he was a completely different man to that. You said he was... Once I met him. You said he was beaten. How how had he been beaten? Oh, not not physically. I mean, he looked... He looked... He looked depleted and obviously very disgruntled all the time every time we turned up, which didn't bother us. At this point, I asked Jason, look, he's been found not guilty twice. It's got to be possible Jay didn't commit these killings. Uh, from my from my knowledge of the brief, yeah, definitely not. There was one person that killed those three children. And you think it, he was that person? Jay Thomas Hart. What makes you so convinced? It just all fits together. He's the last person with all those people. Um, 
He's basically made admissions about it. He's preempted where he was going to put the bodies. His sexual nature, oh, it's just overwhelming evidence. What's really painful when you're in Bowerville itself is how this gulf between what the courts found and what people still believe is wide open. That divide is making the relationship between black people and white people far worse. We spoke to a couple who are still living in the town today. They're white and they didn't want to be identified. But there is still a lot of hatred here. A lot of hatred in this town. Why? I, well, I believe it's the murders. It's the only thing I can put it down to. It's the white, the white fella killed our kids. The white fella killed our kids and got away with it. It's... If it was a white kid that got murdered, the police would have caught him and they would be locked up by now. Still, it's a live wound. Yeah, it's a live wound. <laughs> and in the middle of all of this unhappiness, Jay's mum and stepdad still live in the house where he grew up. So I thought the only place where you're really going to find out about him is at home. Today, it's a pretty messed up property. There's wrecked cars strewn across the yard. There's piles of old tools and other junk. There's even feral-looking goats. So we're standing outside the house where Jay lived when he was growing up in Bowerville and where he was living when the three children disappeared. The neighbours have told us to be careful. So if we need to, I'm going to leave the car unlocked and we'll see how we go. Hello there. Hi, mate. I'm sorry to bother you. This is Jay's stepdad. He didn't want us to use his name. And he is a big bloke. Because we're working on a piece about the disappearance of the kids 25 years Yeah, ago. no, I don't want to make no statements. Thank so you. So I'm not... All we, all we want to do is... You obviously were living here at the time. Yeah, you're yeah. here with Jay. Mm, no, we won't talk because that's what we were told not to. By who? Solicitors, the barrister. Told you not to talk? Mm. When was that? Then? That would have been... When first fuck it happened. That was a long time ago. I right? know that, mate, yeah. So you've never spoken since then? No, never spoken about, no. You never wanted to speak No. Why not, I mean? I saw you earlier, yeah, you were over there. Yeah, I see you moving around the street. What's yeah. that thing on, is it? When he says that thing, he's talking about our recording equipment. At this point, we also started to get a lot of attention from one of his goats. You were told 25 years ago. Not yeah, I know. It must be frustrating. Well, it still hasn't finished, has it? No, it hasn't. And there's still one shield, it's east in Newcastle, if you want to put that on. Which shield is that, sorry? That Walker one. Colleen Walker? Yeah. Alice, no. Colleen Walker, yeah. Isn't Colleen one of the ones who disappeared? Yeah, yeah. You said she's in Newcastle. Well, she's, she's still fucking alive in my books. Why do you think she's alive? Well, that's what the mate of mine saw, saw her in Newcastle. They found her clothes in the river. Yeah, yeah, nothing else, did they? No. And someone could throw the clothes in the river. No, that's all I've got to say. Thank you. There's no evidence Colleen is anything else but murdered. In fact, I think it's offensive to her family for anyone to say that. So why would anyone say that? All of this has left me more, more puzzled, more thrown about Jay than ever. He himself has now left Bowerville. He's changed his name, and these murders still remain unsolved. So could he have done it? I needed someone to give me a straight answer, so I went back to Alison Walker. She knew Jay well. She lived with him for years. They had a child together. I asked her what she thought when she heard that he'd been charged. 
I thought, no, I didn't, I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't believe it at the time. But then I knew in the back of my head, well, it is possible because of the way he treated me. The way he went on with me, he didn't give it, he didn't care what he did to me. What do you think about it now? What do you think about him now? I think he's a coward. He needs to come forward because my son is getting tormented over what, what he's situated in and that's not fair. So could Jay be the killer? And if so, why was he found not guilty? What really went on in court? Next time on Barrowville. When they said not guilty, well, everything just went to pieces. All of my family was just shell-shocked. We just couldn't believe it because we, we were expecting him to be jailed there and then. But that didn't happen to... It still hasn't happened. Bowerville is a podcast brought to you by The Australian. It was produced and edited by Eric George. Original music by Riley McCulloch and Marlo Fitzpatrick. Additional music by Chris Zabriskie, Rui, Graham Bowl, and Andy G. Cohen. You can find all the episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud and on iTunes, where you can also subscribe to keep track of future episodes. To read more about the Bowerville murders, head to theaustralian.com.au forward slash Bowerville. I'm Dan Box.